grateful we are to this congregation, how grateful the Michael Roberts Charitable Trust is to this congregation uh, for your continued support of us. This is, uh, I'm normally here on a Thursday. I have been and worshipped with you before on a Sunday morning, but on a Thursday it's very different. Some of you may have been. It's a lovely atmosphere of people of all kinds coming together, finding friendship, finding fellowship, finding a place of safety, a place to belong with each other from all kinds of backgrounds, particularly supporting people who might have had learning difficulties or disabilities or just who are a bit anxious socially. This is a great place on a Thursday. It's also a great place on a Sunday morning. So thank you so much for, for your welcome and for your support of the Michael Roberts Charitable Trust. Um, I want to, uh, this morning, uh, just come up some reflections on our work uh, and about our work in Harlow, but also on some aspects of the gospel which have really struck me this morning when I was thinking about what I might say to you. Um, I, uh, I'm a big, a big fan of James Taylor. Does anybody like James Taylor? He's a musician, a songwriter. And James Taylor, so I heard him interviewed recently because they said, James, you're now in your mid-70s. Uh, you still get up every day. You get on a plane. You go somewhere around the world. You travel about the place. And um, you could be at home just putting your feet up, maybe patting your dog and having a nice rest. Why do you do it? And he said, well, the older you get, the more difficult it is to be the center of attention. Because, you know, people... People kind of look through you. You're looking a bit old. You're not so attractive. You're not so, you know, full of fun. And he said, but it's the only way I can become the center of attention is <laughs> if I do all that. And I came here a while ago and I saw um, uh, my former colleague, Dave, who's now your pastor, speaking. And I thought, wouldn't it be great to speak for 25 minutes and nobody interrupt? <laughs> and here I am. Uh, you can interrupt if you want, uh, but I just want to say a prayer for, for, for this, what I want to say to you, and uh, because I don't want me to be the center of the attention. Uh, so would you pray with me that uh, God, our good and loving God, um, please come and be the center of attention as I speak and share our stories of Maybury Open Door, and as we look at your uh, gospel, uh, sorry, our stories of Michael Roberts Charitable Trust, and as we look at your gospel here, here today, God bless us each one, as you may have something different for each one of us, and uh, help me make sense of what you have to say to us. Amen. Um, I've been in Harlow now for about 17 years, um, but I want to start by telling you a bit of a story about me a long time ago, which hopefully will be interesting and relevant to you. Because I grew up in Yorkshire, and my grandparents lived in the mining areas of Yorkshire, and uh, my dad uh, was the first person in our, our, as far as we can go back in our uh, history of our family, who ever went to college. And he went to college after the war, and he became a PE teacher for about five years until his back went, and then he was told to teach primary instead. And he, he, he was the, the head teacher of a tiny school of about 40 people. We could have all, about this many people in, in two different classrooms. And um, my dad was a, a, a straightforward Church of England believing man. And he brought us into a Church of England school. And every day we'd, we had prayers in the morning, prayers at night. And I kind of grew up not questioning anything. In fact, I, I think I can truly say I grew up loving Jesus. The stories I heard about Jesus, I thought, this is amazing. The teaching of Jesus we were given. And so I just thought, yeah, I'm a Christian. And then one day I was 17 and I had a girlfriend who was babysitting for a, a couple who, who led the youth fellowship in the church down the road and she'd started going to it. And they said, uh, do you want to come with us to a, a guest service at York Minster? I live near York. 
And there was a guy there at the time, some of you will have heard of, called David Watson, who had a gift of evangelism. And, and, and word had got out about this fellow that things were happening in York, which is not where you expect things to happen, because it's a pretty sleepy old English town. And I said, yeah, I'll go to that. And so in this, it was quite unusual because it wasn't like a normal church service I'd been used to in that there was people acting stories of the, to do with the gospel and then people singing and, you know, people telling their testimonies. I'd never seen anything like it. Then he said, he said, um, I'd like you to, if you would like to ask Jesus into your life to pray this prayer with me at the end. And I thought, yeah, I'm up for that. I've always liked Jesus. <laughs> I've always, this, this is good. I've always quite liked praying. And so he prayed this prayer. He said, I want you to ask Jesus into your life. And the kind of prayer some of you might be familiar with, which is just, Lord, come into my life. I want you to be the ruler of my life. And I, so I just went with it. And at the end of this prayer, something arrived in my life. Something that I'd never known before. Something big and strong and sure just arrived in the middle of my kind of guts and in my heart and I didn't really know what it was <laughs> and I turned to my girlfriend at the time and said did you feel that and she went what and I thought I think that's a no because if you did you'd know what I was talking about and um, I now know something of what that was but I didn't at the time I, I was quite joyful I remember hitching home down the road from her house and this guy arrived in a kind of vintage old car and thought, oh, he picked me up. And the first thing I said to him was, were you at York Minster tonight? Because I wanted to tell him about my experience. I said, I can't, I can't put this into words. And the guy thought, <laughs> I picked up a real weirdo here. You know, let me drop him off as soon as I can. But, but I, I just didn't know how to express it. And in fact, I think now, and what I wanted to say today, it's partly that I've spent the last almost like 48 years trying to come to terms with that. Because what was it? What was it that happened and what did it want of me? Now, I think those of us who are Christians kind of have come to terms with that in some respects because what happened to me was I then did badly in my A-levels and I went up to, to a, didn't get the university I wanted to and I ended up in this little, little um, digs, or what do you call it? A, a sort of, what's digs? Do you know what I mean by digs? I don't know if that's the northern word. Uh, yeah, uh, in not a whole of essence, but just um, a, an old woman and her uh, mentally disabled child, actually, and me and this other guy in this little house and just about four miles out of Dundee where I was living. And he, um, after a while, this guy who I thought was a bit weird and a bit sort of stiff, he, uh, I, I, he said to me, you know, I'm a, I'm a Christian. Uh, he said he wouldn't do this, he wouldn't go out drinking, he wouldn't do such and such. I said, what's your problem? Why don't you come and do these things? And he said, I'm a Christian. I said, so am I. What's your problem? And so he kind of said, well, this is my problem. And he kind of got the Bible out and started telling me, you know, all the things that I should and shouldn't be doing. And to which, eventually, I thought, well, there's a lot of sense in what he's saying here. And I ended up being a part of a brethren church for about a year. And uh, I kind of, I'm still, because I told him about my experience of God, and uh, and he, he kind of said, yeah, that's, that's kind of God, although he wasn't too much for the emotional stuff. Uh, uh, but the joy was definitely a little bit low down his, um, low down his agenda. But, um, uh, so I went there, and I think that began, the, the main thing that did, it was it kind of straightened me out. 
Because he was saying, but you've got to straighten yourself out if you want to follow God. Because I think what had happened in that first experience is that God had kind of arrived and said to me, listen, Andy, I'm here. I am here. I am real. The next thing he said is, I am with you. I am in you. And the next thing he said is, follow me and trust me, you're safe. And I still think that is one of the most profound things, I think, that God ever says to us, you're safe now. Sometimes you say you're saved, but you're safe. You can't. You, you know, if, if, if you just stay open to me, you can't go wrong. You really can't, even though we all make mistakes and we all sin and we all do that. But you're safe. You're under my care. And I, I do think that um, I've taken that with me. Um, but after a while, I felt that wasn't quite working because somehow I think I've become almost like a follower of John the Baptist. You know, repent and believe, repent, straighten yourself out. And somebody told me, no, this isn't quite, I didn't think that at the time, I do now. I'm a follower of Jesus the Christ. It's not quite the same. Because what Jesus the Christ comes to do is to lead us into life. To lead us to say, follow me into life, into life in its fullness. Don't hold yourself in, don't be scared anymore, you're safe. But you have to learn to follow me. And that, I think, is what I want to just make some reflections on today. This idea that following Jesus isn't just being kind of um, compliant or you know, fitting in or doing the right thing. Because each one of us has a way of following. Each one of us here has a different calling. And each one of us, when we put one foot in front of the other to follow Jesus, it might be in a slightly different direction. It might be saying something different. It might be asking something different of us. And I think that's the thrill of it. But it's also we have to learn to tolerate that, you know, some of us might look a bit weird to the others because they're choosing one thing and the other one's choosing another. Um, a very interesting thing I think happened to me. I started then doing youth work and I ended up starting opening a center in the church we were working in doing, uh, and doing. And then I was eventually invited to go and become the youth leader in uh, the Church of Scotland in Glasgow when I was 25. And I, I, we worked, and I, I started doing a lot more urban youth work and working with kids who were really, really, you know, from families of criminality or whatever, and, and, and sort of long-term damaged kids and families. And I met this guy called Jim Ponton, who worked for kind of Scripture Union, but a, br a branch of Scripture Union that worked mostly with uh, kids who were uh, from difficult families, for difficult backgrounds, urban youth work basically. And Jim, uh, who, who died uh, fairly young, but I remember Jim saying, we've got to watch out as Christians. We've got to watch out that we don't become people who spend their lives having tasted something of God, standing on the edge of what God is offering to us and saying to people, come in, come in, it's great in here, it's great in here, but not actually going in, not actually going into the fullness of what God has got to offer us, standing on the edge and not experiencing the thing we're talking about. Because at the same time, I think God wants us to speak about what we've experienced of God and what we've heard of God in the Gospels through Christ, but also to walk deeper, deeper into, into our lives with God. And he expressed it as saying, we must be careful not to stand on the edge of the kingdom saying, come in. But we must go into the kingdom ourselves and experience the richness of God. And recently I've come to think and, and, and encounter a, a revelation to me, which is if you were a Christian 
around the time of Jesus and you heard, uh, or, you, uh, uh, or you met Jesus and you heard him talking about the kingdom of God, you wouldn't be hearing the word king in there. Because the word in Aramaic and Hebrew that Jesus might have were, means the realm of God or the rule of God. It's a neutral word. It's not a masculine or feminine word. It's a neutral word. And it means the realm or the reign of God. So there's no king in kingdom, but it makes sense here because every different translator has to refer to a place where somebody is reigning. So when you go uh, in, into Africa, they'll say the, the chief, or the king of kings, the chief of chiefs. So I, I made uh, some recordings with a, uh, an African singer, and he kept say, Yesu Fumu, Fumu means chief, Jesus the chief. So they would, they would, because that's the authority. And the reign of God, or the rule of God, it's a bit like the rule of law, which means that the thing that we are looking for to be in charge, the thing that we are answering to, is God's rule and God's reign. And I think, that's, I think that is a helpful thing, insofar as it doesn't imagine a place, but it imagines that, there is, that God is in our world now, among us, inviting us to a bigger life. A life where God reigns and the power of God, the presence of God can become manifest and wants to become manifest in our lives and wants to make things happen. Manifest is making things happen. It's not just feeling, but it's creating and doing things. And my big, my big kind of... Um, Learning in life, as, as I continue doing fairly crazy jobs and, and uh, activities, and the last 10 years I was going around the world a lot in different countries and working in, in social action projects to, to create projects that will make a difference to the cultures and the societies in different countries. The thing I've really learned is that I think uh, when we believe that God is in the world already, and we are calling people out to encounter God and become part of the kingdom. That's what we're hearing in the first few Gospels of Jesus. Jesus keeps saying, the kingdom of God is like this, the kingdom of God is like that. And he goes over the top with metaphor after metaphor. Like The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, okay? The kingdom of God is like someone who finds a pearl of great price. The kingdom of God, he goes on with these many, many ways of saying, it's really hard to picture this, but God is present all over the place, and when we encounter God, there is a transformation that happens in people's lives, and it starts to become the life as God intended, because the rule of God is breaking in, the reign of God is breaking in, and only when we orientate ourselves to God first and foremost does the chance of the rule of God begin to break into our lives. I'd like to think about that in terms of um, what we do at the Michael Roberts Charitable Trust because sometimes people don't understand how we work. We've got four projects in Harlow and we've come from this church virtually because the founders, um, uh, Gary Knott and Teresa Knott, who was here this morning, but she's gone off because she knew I was going to speak. Um, our founders came from this church and they had a kind of a vision of what they needed to do to, to respond to the need in Harlow. They first started responding to the need of those who felt isolated, lonely, overlooked because of their learning difficulties. And they started this beautiful thing called the Maybury Open Door, which is now in its 24th year.
And we're hugely grateful to your part in that, in this church. Uh, but in 2009, they started the food bank, the Harlow Food Bank, as, as a, a part of their Christian mission. And then shortly after that, they started a thing called the Bounty Club, which picks up fresh food every day. And we make it, we now make it available to families, but at the time it was dropped off to different organizations because they realized that the food wastage that goes on, even from this town, is massive. We pick up between one and two tons of food a day. That's a lot of food. That's like stacking this bit here up to here sort of thing a day. We fill two vans of food a day and we now make it available because in the cost of living crisis, so many people and families have found themselves not able to make ends meet. But the important thing, I think, about both of those things is that when somebody is hungry, they're not just, oh, I'm feeling a bit peckish or whatever. If you're hungry long-term, 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 your life gets ground down. Your mental health goes. Your sense of you know, uh, being somebody starts to crumble. And it's very important that I think we as Christians say we get that. We're human beings too. We get that. We get that you are losing your sense of belonging. You're losing your sense of power in your life. You're losing your sense of, I don't know, just being cared for, being part of a community. And people stop answering the phone when their friends ring because the friends are inviting them out to something, but they haven't got any money. So they can't go and they gradually become more and more isolated. And I think with God, nobody is overlooked. With God, nobody is a nobody. With God, there needs to be a message somewhere that you are f we know you are a physical human being. You're not just a spirit wrapped in some old flesh. All of this is integrated. And to show people that you understand that is very important. So every day now, down at um, St. Paul's Church, where we operate, we give the food from, we have between 100 and 150 people coming to us. So that's five or 600 families a week are getting support from us. And you are part of that. You are part of supporting those families not to crumble and to know that somebody somewhere is thinking of them. And I've been in situations where people have come to the food bank and they picked up two bags of food and their response isn't, um, oh, thank God I've got some food and my kids can eat. Their response is, People are so caring. I remember this woman just burst into tears. She said, people are so caring. And you know what she was feeling? She was feeling that someone was thinking about her, even though they never met her. Uh, even though, for whatever reason, uh, she'd ended up in trouble, in, in hardship. And someone somewhere was storing this pile of food in this old barn on the edge of Harlow and having it ready to come to them when they needed it. So she could walk away and think, I haven't been forgotten. And I do like to think that when we're giving out food and collecting food, we're doing some kind of making community happen because we're saying you haven't been forgotten. You're not overlooked, just like in maybe Open Door. And we've similarly got a project um, called um, Bump to Five, which, which gets things that uh, people have stopped using for their children aged zero to five. We store them up, and anyone who needs it can come and get what they need. So we're giving out about 100 cots a year, but thousands and thousands of items of clothing, all sorts of things that people have don't no longer need. We're running these four projects, and we ran a school uniform shop in the summer holidays in a new premises we've got in the Harvey Center, 
We're trying to practically show to people that there is care coming your way. And we're trying to also kind of conduct the orchestra of carers in Harlow. So if you want to help someone, give it to us and we'll get it to the people who need it. And we, we work with all the care agencies around Harlow. And uh, we, I, I, I chair something called the Harlow Poverty Alliance. We're trying to connect everyone up so nobody gets overlooked. And I think this is bang in line, myself, with what I'm reading in the Gospels. So by way of illustration... And, and sort of try and connect this up. I wanted to look today with you at the the miracle that Jesus performed. That is, there's only one miracle that's in all four of the Gospels as we read them. Does anyone know which one it is? It, it's the feeding of the five thousand. It's the only one that every gospel writer thought, this is so important, I need to, draw, I need to make sure they hear about this. They're not going to believe it. Uh, which is because it's such a great, great story. It's the one miracle that's recorded. And as we, as we look at um, the, the gospels, we are seeing from the earliest gospel, which is probably Mark's gospel, we're seeing the stories that were handed, passed around and gathered together and put down in different kind of orders. And I thought, well, let's look at it from one of the earlier Gospels and then one of the later Gospels, because people had different, to different sort of tones in the way they tell stories uh, in the Gospels. You'll find that many Gospels, you'll read the same story from another angle, another perspective, because it's been remembered and retold from a different perspective. Um, but uh, the story of the Feeding of 5,000, I'm going to kind of assume you've heard this at some point, you know, this, uh, but... But I'm going to re we're going to read it from two Gospels, and, and I want to try and connect it to the kind of things I'm saying today about what we do, how I see it, and how you might see it, and how you are part of it. Because I think everyone here is still part of a kind of ongoing uh, uh, miracle uh, that relates to the feeding of the 5,000. Um, so I, th I think we've got two versions ready to go here. I think we've got one... Uh, from Mark, is it? We can start on this one, I think, yeah. So this is, this is the kind of earliest gospel, and actually the, uh, Mark is the earliest written gospel, probably 30 years after the life of Jesus, so he's recording the way this story has been told and putting it down here. Uh, so it goes this, by this time it was late in the day, so he's been talking and, and teaching the crowds who've been coming to him, which is a, uh, an amazing thing when you imagine it, there, there was loads of people following Jesus around when he sat down. They'd heard the buzz about him, like, you know, in York we'd heard about this evangelist and I ended up meeting him. Uh, but in, in, in Israel, this was a big deal. Thousands of people were following this guy around. Uh, by this time, it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place, we're in the middle of nowhere, and it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. So, very thoughtfully, the disciples are saying, these guys are starving, let's help them out, because they're going to waste away if we don't think about their physical needs. But he answered, no, you give them something to eat. And I thought, this is a bit strange, they say to him, but that would take more than half a year's wages, 5,000 people. Are we going to go and spend that much bread on bread and give them something to eat? And Jesus says, well, how many loaves have you got? So they go, they go and see, and they find five loaves and two fish. Then Jesus tells them to, to make all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. 
and taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and he broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute the people and he also divided the two fish among them and they all ate and were satisfied. The disciples picked up extra, twelve basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish and the number of the men who had eaten was five thousand. That's the way Mark first tells that story. Do you know what, when I see that story, one thing that comes out to me, and this relates to my life and Alison's life, and we work together uh, um, every day, <laughs> organizing. Because our job, we spend almost, you know, I, I'm very rarely speaking to people like this. You may say that's a good thing. I'm very rarely speaking to lots of people at one time because we are organizing. But one strange thing I find in this story is Jesus has got all these people sitting in front of him and you know, 5,000 is a lot. I don't know if you've ever, I used to run a festival of 5,000. I can imagine that because I knew how many people fitted in the field of 5,000. Um, it's a lot of people. And certainly in the way this is recorded, what, what they do is they sit them down in various ways, but they 50 rows of 100 or 100 rows of 50. If you read this near the time of Jesus, I'm pretty sure you'd be hearing it was like a military operation. That, that would be our modern equivalent of what we say. It was like a military operation. Why on earth line everybody up? Why not just pass this food out like we did this morning with the bread and the wine? Why line everybody up? And why record the fact that you line people up in 50 rows of 100? I tell you what they were thought at the time. I bet most people thought this, 50 rows of 100. So that's 50 centurions. Because in an occupied land, where one man was the head of a hundred, who'd be called a centurion, this was like a kind of uprising. This was, they would remember this as a kind of, oh, they were getting organized out there. They were organizing themselves in the desert. Other people would have heard, well, this is like the manna coming from heaven. This is like when God takes care of the children of Israel in the desert. They've got nothing left to eat, and this manna came out. Different people will hear different things in the parable, but definitely some people have heard it's a kind of political thing, a political gathering. And I'm not saying that Jesus was political in the way we are currently political, but I'm saying that people were hearing something that looked like a bit of an uprising. Here was this guy in the desert, with a pile of people who were getting a mindset that looked like a bit of an uprising. And sure enough, I think if we go through the Gospels with that, we will see it, particularly in Mark's Gospel. But what we'll see is that Jesus was a non-violent resistor who died the death of a non-violent resistor. He could not do harm. He could not do harm and he couldn't comply and go along with those who did harm. He could only do good. So here was a kind of a gathering of people like a military operation, except it was doing good. It was bringing life. It was bringing sustenance to people. And I think, and I kind of try to say this out of a, asking you to have a bit of sympathy for us, because it takes a lot of organizing for us to get that many people that much food every day. And in fact, last year, and I say this with a great degree of confidence now, last year we definitely fed 5,000 people in Harlow. Not just for one meal, but probably with 20 to 100 meals. And the great thing about why I say that is not to say, 
I'm like Jesus, <laughs> we're like Jesus, is to say that God still wants to do this kind of thing. I, wanted, I want to, to, to go to, to John's Gospel and read John's Gospel version of this. Because in John's Gospel, when he talks about the miracles, he doesn't say, and there was this other miracle. He said, then there was this sign. There's only nine miracles in John's Gospel, and they're nearly always referred to as signs. And, and when he says sign, we have to say, well, what is, it, what is it a sign of? What is the sign that's going on in John's Gospel when he refers to this miracle as a sign? And before, before we read it, I want to say, I think it's this. It's, it's Jesus showing in a very physical way, in a very immediate way, the way things are when God reigns. When God is in control, when God's kingdom, when, when God is given things, when things are put in God's hands, they change. So when a blind person comes to Jesus, and Jesus touches the blind person, when illness and sickness is put in God's hand, it's changed. Because that's what God wants to do with our sickness. Eventually, there will be no more sickness, there will be no more tears. You read the book of Revelation, this final vision. It will be a place where there will be no more hardship, no more pain. Because that's what God is leading us to. God is asking us to follow God to this place. And what happens when food is put into God's hands? What happens? Let's have a look at John's Gospel if we can. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias. Has anyone been there? I've been swimming there, it's very nice. <laughs> it's, a, it's a little lake, really. I, I was, I've been reading about it all my life. I imagined it was like you know, a huge sea, and it was like a lake in the Lake District. I thought, that's a bit overblown, isn't it? The Sea of Tiberias? But when you get there, it's just, it's just a, a quite a big lake. Um, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs and they performed by healing of those who were ill. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. I'm sure that was a significant trigger for people about time to eat, time to be at, uh, time to expect God to come and deliver you. And when Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, where should we buy bread for all these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he'd already had in mind what he was going to do. I don't know how. Philip answered, it would take more than half a year's wages, same words, to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of disciples said, Simon Peter's brother spoke up and said, and this isn't in any of the other Gospels, here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fishes, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, make the people sit down, no mention of rows of fifty, no mention of, of hundreds, anything like that, but make, make them sit down, there's plenty of grass, so they sat down, but again, 5,000 is remembered as the figure, probably because of the way it had been told, the rows of 50, but not mentioned. John, living much, much later, probably wrote this about 50 years later, the Mark's Gospel, a different way of seeing the story of Jesus. Jesus took the loaves, he gave thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated as much as they wanted, he did the same with the fish. And when they'd all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces left over, let nothing be wasted. And sure enough, the same conclusion, all the people were fed as much as they wanted, and there's plenty left over. God did an act of taking food and doing what God 
wants to do with food. This is what I see here. This is what God wants to do with food. He wants to make sure that everyone has enough. He wants to make sure that no one goes hungry. And in a world like ours, which so, where so many people are starving, so many people in various situations, I think God is saying, no, this is what I want. This is my sign. I want everyone to have enough. I don't want those people to be so stinking rich that, you know, like the 20 billionaires have half the, the, the wealth of half the world or something as it is now. I want everyone to have enough. I want everyone to know that they are cared for, that, every, that they are bodily cared for as well as emotionally, spiritually. I want everyone to have enough. But the way in John's Gospel everyone has enough is this one little guy, the most innocent perhaps, the most, he doesn't say, all right guys, go count up your food. This little innocent person is brought up and says, well I've got this, I'll share this. You can share my food. And Jesus takes the offering of the sort of meekest, the person who's got hardly anything, and says, okay, let's take your food and let's make that enough. I don't know what you make of that. I spent many years thinking about this. But strangely, at the end of my life, this is probably the last job I do anyway, I'm taking the food that the people who say, okay, you can share this, and it's becoming enough. Does that make sense? It's becoming enough because those who are willing, and certainly this is a recurrent theme of Jesus, those who are willing, who offer their little bit, end up being the yeast, or however you want to put it, end up being the thing that spreads across to others and creates changes the atmosphere so that other people become more like them. So when Jesus talks to his disciples, he uses many ways of saying, you are light to the world. You are uh, yeast which makes the whole dough rise up. You are kind of like the catalyst in the world of things that make a difference. So I think what we're doing at the Michael Roberts Charitable Trust and through the Food Bank, the Bounty Club, is we're saying to people, come on, come and join us here. Because we want you to join in multiplying this. You give your bit of care. You give your bit of care. You give your bit of care. And what we will do at the end of the day is we will make sure there's enough. And so far in our work, there has been enough. And the amount of people in need in Harlow has gone up hugely. But when we appeal to people and say, can you help, can you help? So far, there's enough. We're actually managing to go from, in the early days, probably doing about, um, I think it's something like two or three hundred parcels a year to three thousand last year, and that's uh, kind of amazing insofar as we think God is blessing what we do because we're just trying to put one foot in front of the other and be faithful and to let God lead us into making something good enough happen that there is enough for everyone. I think. Um, the way that we walk into the reign of God is knowing that we are safe, knowing that God knows, loves and cares about us so much that we don't have to worry about ourselves anymore. And one way that Jesus put this into a way that everyone remembered was, seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things will be added to you. Don't worry. 
Don't worry about the cares of this world. Don't worry about whether you're going to have enough money. Don't worry about all these kind of things. Because if you are seeking the reign of God, the coming God, if you're seeking what is God's heart, what is the way that God is in this world, then you don't need to worry about that. Because God will make the, the evidence of God's care emerge around you as you walk one foot after another. I think this is what God does when we risk giving. We don't have to think too much and get too hung up about being holy. We have to get more hung up about responding to the need of the world because that's where God is waiting. That's where God is asking us to join God, to be like Jesus, responding to the need of the world. People used to say of Jesus, he's like, he, he hangs out with sinners. You know, and the, the, the Jewish powers would condemn him. And we fear that we may be seen to hang out with sinners if we do, if we go and interact too much with people in need, for instance. But we don't need to worry about that because Jesus was going to those in pain, not to sinners. He was going to those who were struggling, those who felt overlooked, uncared for. And many of those in nearly all societies end up being called sinners because they have to survive and sometimes do things that others, holy people, call sinners. I don't think we need to worry about that. We have to start walking in the direction where we give our lives to those who are struggling, because that's where God is waiting. I'll finish with this last, this last reading, which you will be familiar with, I think. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me in. This is Jesus one of his kind of parables, but describing the fact that um, people were overlooking, uh, people were looking for, for God's judgment on their lives. And he was explaining, how would you know that you have been, how would you know that God has favored your life, basically? I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me a drink. I was stranger, and you welcomed me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And Jesus ends by saying, this is why God has recognized us and invited us to join with him. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of my brothers here, you did it to me. God invites us to be confident in walking forward, in caring for those who are overlooked. Because I believe that's where God is waiting. Not only waiting to be recognized, but that is the thing that changes us inside. It changes us when we reach out to others. We reach out to them, yes, with our words and tell them the gospel, but also with our actions and with these symbols and signs of love and care. So I hope, I'm not a great speaker, but I hope that is me trying to tell, to give you some sense of this is what we are trying to do and this is what you have been part of for 25 years, this church has been part of. It's been sharing tangible expressions of the love of God and I think in keeping with the way that we see Jesus in the gospel, showing signs of God's kingdom or God's reign that each one of us will have a part to play in. So. Thank you for listening to me, uh, and thank you for uh, being part of this endeavor.
which is the Michael Roberts Charitable Trust. Will you just say a prayer with me to, to, to finish? Jesus, we recognize you as calling us forwards and calling us forwards to follow you into the unknown that you have something ready for each one of us if we want to risk our lives to you. And I ask that you will help us all to see what that is, to be brave and courageous, to follow the Jesus, the Christ, who eventually found himself rejected or misunderstood or eventually crucified for trying to show people your kingdom. We want to tell you that we're ready for that, but we'll need you so much. We need your help so much. So by your spirit, lead us on. Amen. Amen.